Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. Please take your Bibles with me and turn to Romans chapter 11. We're going to be jumping into a new chapter this morning in the book of Romans. This entire year we've been focusing on the book of Romans as it deals particularly with this teaching of the gospel. And for those of you that have been with us, I know that a lot of this is a review, but it's always good to review as we jump into the next section. And so the book of Romans is written by the Apostle Paul to the Church of Rome uh, on this subject of the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Gospel means good news. It is the only answer to man's ultimate problem, which is sin. The gospel at its foundation is the restoration of our relationship with God. We know that because of our sin, we've been severed in our relationship with God. But Jesus Christ came to earth in order to restore our relationship with God. It is, it is in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, that we can have new life. The Bible alone is our authority. We've, we've mentioned this many, many times. It, it's not the teaching of man. It's not the teaching of anyone else other than God through His Word. As we shared last week, our job, or two weeks ago, our job as messengers, as Christians, is to be messengers to share this good news of the world. Even if a person goes to church, this does not mean that they know what the gospel is. The only way that we can be prepared is to identify really the false teachers between those that are true apostles or true disciples of Jesus Christ, I should say. And that's those that proclaim the good news of the gospel. Within the first section of Romans, we see here really from the first uh, chapter 1 down to the end of or in the middle of chapter 3, we see man's problem of sin and God's judgment upon mankind because of his sin. As we move into the second section of Romans, it is the answer or the solution to man's problem of sin, and that is the hope that we find in Jesus Christ. As we move into the third section of Romans, it is really the instructions that we ought to have or that we do have as Christians to live our life after we receive Christ. It's not you continue to live in sin. No, no, no. You go through this sanctification process of becoming more like Christ. Where we find ourselves right now in this particular section of Romans is Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And really, this parenthetical phrase is there to answer the question of the struggle that the Jews had regarding their relationship with God. As we see all throughout the Old Testament, which the Jews understood very well, is that God's chosen people were the Jews. But majority of the Jews rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so therefore, they did not have a relationship with God. And so they had this question, how in the world can we trust God if it seems as if He has broken His promises to His own people? How do I know that God will never leave me nor forsake me? If God cannot even fulfill His promises to His own people, then how am I supposed to trust in God? And so, uh, so the Apostle Paul pauses and focuses this attention to answer this question in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. In Romans chapter 9, what we see here is the past situation of Israel. It is the past relationship of Israel to God. In Romans chapter 10, as we finished discussing last week, it is the present situation with the Israelites. Currently, if you were to look at the situation between God and the Jewish people, God has redirected His attention from the Jews to the Gentiles. Does that mean that God has forgotten about the Israelites, as we're going to see here this morning? No, that's not the case. God has not done that. There is another teaching out there called Replacement Theology, which teaches that. But if you were to look at the Bible from a literal standpoint, God still has a plan for the Israelites. And we'll talk about that here in just a few moments. As we venture our way into Romans chapter 11, it is talking about the future situation with the Israelites. So the question here this morning is, what is the big deal? 
Last time I checked, I'm not Jewish. So how does any of this apply to me? Well, first off, it's in God's word. And so therefore, if it's in God's word, then it is applicable to us. Even though we are not specifically Jews, that doesn't mean that this does not apply. What we see within this section of scripture is we see God's sovereign election. In other words, God chooses whom he wills in order to use to correspond with his will. So yes, it particularly applies to Israel, but that is far bigger than just Israel. The very fact that you are saved and you are part of the elect of God means that God has chosen you to fulfill a specific plan in his overall kingdom. As we talked about last week or a couple of weeks ago in in Romans chapter 10, God still has a plan for the Jewish people. We as Christians are set up as, as far as God's divine plan to be messengers of the gospel to those that have not yet received the gospel. We understand that God reveals himself through general revelation. In other words, God reveals himself through creation, but a a person cannot restore their relationship with God just merely on general revelation. A person has to have specific or special revelation, which is God revealing himself, the gospel, through his word, and God has set it up for us to be the messengers to do so, which is why we support missionaries, which is why we support church planners, which is why we, as a Christian, have the individual responsibility of sharing the gospel to those that we come in contact with. So as we progress into Romans chapter 11 here this morning, we enter this section with a burning question. If you, were to read, if you look down in Romans chapter 10, verses 18 through 21, what you're going to see here is really this replacement, not I shouldn't say replacement, this setting aside of the Jewish people for God to focus his attention upon the Gentiles. He says here in verse 18, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily their sound went all throughout the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. In other words, he's saying, yes, of course the Israelites heard the good news of the gospel. But I say, did not Israel know? For Moses saith, I will provoke you by jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. That, and Paul using that quote back from Moses, what he's referring to is that there will come a point in time in which God and his relationship with the Jewish people in order to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy, in order to help them realize that they must restore their relationship with God, they will be replaced or they will be set aside for a period of time to a no nation or no people group. That no people group is us. It's the Gentiles. The Jews did not like the Gentiles. The Jews thought the Gentiles were nothing more than dogs. The mere fact that God delivered his Law to the Jews made the Jews look at everybody else who are not Jewish as being less superior, as being a lesser kind of people. And so in order to provoke the Jews to jealousy, God has transitioned his focus to the Gentile people, which leaves us with this question. Okay, so then has God now forgotten about the Israelites? Does God no longer have a plan for the Jewish people? Enter in Romans chapter 11. The question is really this natural result due to the present situation of the Jews. Through the book of or both of these prophetic claims that he makes in Romans, at the end of Romans chapter 10, the nation of Israel is told that because of their rejection, God's attention would be directed to a foolish nation. In Romans chapter 11, Paul discusses the future of Israel by dividing the chapter into three sections. The first section strictly deals with this question that we're going to talk about this morning. Has God forgotten about Israel? So if you could stand with me out of respect and honor of God's word, we're going to read Romans chapter 11, verses 1 down to verse 10. This is Paul saying, I say then, hath God not cast away his people? God forbid. 
For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which ye foreknew. What ye not, what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then is it no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace, otherwise works is no more work. What then? In verse 7, Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber eyes, that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back alway. Sometimes when God seems distant, it seems as if God has forgotten about us. The Jews could have certainly come to the conclusion that based upon what Paul said in the conclusion of Romans chapter 10, that God indeed had forgotten about his people. But Paul makes it absolutely very clear in verses 1 through 10 that God has not forgotten about his people. There are still some in Israel that receive him. This is called the remnant. God is still working behind the scenes, even though he seems distant. And through our time together this morning, what we're going to observe is God's mercy and grace and his continual sovereign working in all circumstances, even when we don't fully understand it. So the title of the message this morning is, Has God Forgotten About Israel? Absolutely not. Thank you. You may be seated. As I mentioned uh, a little earlier, there is a form of teaching out there within the Christian circles that teaches that the church has replaced Israel and God's overall plan. This type of teaching is known as replacement theology. I'm sure many of you have probably heard of that before. Essentially, this view teaches that God does not have a specific plan for the nation of Israel, and many of the promises made to Israel are now fulfilled within the Christian church. If one was to take an honest look at the New Testament and interpret the Scripture based upon a literal interpretation. In other words, this is how we view Scripture. It is interpreting the Scripture literally based upon how the writer wrote it. Then they would see that God has not forgotten about the nation of Israel. It's just at this particular time, He has set them aside and He's focused His attention on the Gentiles. All of the covenants, the promises, and the warnings that came in the Mosaic Covenant were only valid for the nation of Israel. In Romans chapter 11, what we see in this particular chapter is it shows us that Israel has only been temporarily set aside within God's overall plan. But eventually, God will turn His attention back to Israel. And with us interpreting the Bible from a literal interpretation, God will restore Israel as a primary focus of His plan after the rapture of the church. So until that rapture occurs, or until the rapture occurs, God's attention is on the Gentiles. So what Romans chapter 11 does is it provides hope for this nation of Israel. It's Paul's expression of the faithfulness of God with his chosen people. So within this particular chapter, Paul explains the fact that Israel has not been forgotten. That Israel has not been replaced. Paul explains the fact that his overall sovereign plan includes the dispensation of grace to fall upon the church right now. That is God's design. 
And some people would say that, are you dispensationalists? And, and, and if you were to write that down, yes, we would be a dispensationalist. In other words, we see from a little interpret, literal interpretation of Scripture that God has different dispensations in which He works. We don't look at portions of the Bible as being an allegory, but being a literal interpretation. God will one day restore Israel to His intended role as His chosen people, but right now His attention is not focused on them. Is The gospel is being delivered through here, the church. And so in our passage this morning, what we're going to see here is Paul really delivering two examples as to why uh, we can see that God has not forgotten about the nation of Israel. So the first thing that we're going to look at here this morning is this, the personal example of God's continuous work. Paul says in verse 1, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. There is perhaps not a more powerful example of God's grace than a personal testimony. How many of you have shared your personal testimony with someone of the time that you came to know Christ? Okay, one. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, so yeah, most of you. Has anybody ever argued with you about that? Some of you some of you've had arguments, but ultimately when you give your story about this is how God has impacted me, people really can't argue with you about that because it is your story. Young Clive was born in Belfast, Ireland on November 29th of 1989. Clive experienced a wonderful childhood, and many of his days were filled with, I think uh, Kaylee could probably relate to this, reading books, playing with his older brother, um, even though Kaylee doesn't have one of those, and inventing different games. But all of that joy shifted when his mother died when Clive was just nine years old. And unable to cope really with his mom dying, he in essence lost his father as well, because his father couldn't handle it. And so young Clive was sent off to a boarding school where he attended church. And he attended church for quite some time, but after many years of disappointment, he eventually quit on God altogether. Many of you have heard the story of somebody quitting on God. Clive was drawn into atheism. He filled his life with many educated men that supported atheism, like Bertrand Russell and Voltaire. Clive spent many years in his study to support his atheistic viewpoints, but no matter how hard he tried, he just could not shake the fact that life had to mean something more than just existing. And one day, while riding on the bus, Clive had a sense that he was holding to something at bay or just shutting something out. He came to the conclusion that he could either open the door or let it shut. And finally, in 1931, young Clive, better known as C.S. Lewis, surrendered his life to Christ. Lewis, who describes himself as the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England, became a follower of Christ. And many of you in here have read some portions of his writings. That's Clive's testimony. No one can argue with that. No one can argue with your story. Paul realizing that he had the most personal and powerful support of God still working with the Jews gave the Jews his own personal testimony in verse 1. He says, of course God has not forgotten about you. I am a walking example of God's continuous grace. I'm a Jew in whom God has sovereignly elected to be an apostle. Of course he's not done with us. Notice how Paul words this opening question. He says, has God or hath God cast away his people? In the original Greek, to cast away means to thrust away from oneself. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, my wife, um, she hates spiders. I'm just going to put it that way. I'm sure some of you in here hate spiders. My wife hates spiders. 
And so the other day, you know, us living in North Carolina, I think that that's like the most popular animal or creature down here is a spider. And so she's walking through our yard from the garden and she walks right through a spider web. I hate that feeling. Uh, you've been there. We walked through a ton of spider webs when we were hiking on the trail. So she came inside and she was worried. She said, Brandon, is there a spider on me? And I looked and she had a sweater on and I didn't see anything. And my son, within just a few moments, worriedly exclaimed to my wife, Mommy, there's a spider crawling on you. And my wife, being as scared as she is about spiders, ripped her sweater off because there was a spider apparently hiding underneath one of the folds of her sweater. It was crawling up towards her face, ripped the sweater off, and thrusted it across the kitchen with disgust. And I killed the spider and everything was good. I'm going to be honest with you. That was a scary, nasty-looking spider, too. If it was crawling on me, I would have been like, oh, I don't know about that. That's the visual image in what Paul is saying here regarding that phrase, that phrase. The Jews were thinking that what my wife did with her sweater is what God did with the Jews. He thrusted them away. You aren't going to follow me? I'm done with you. I'm at, you're out of here. And Paul's answer to that was the strongest negative phrase that you could give in the Greek language, and that is, God forbid. That is like us saying, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Honestly, this would be the only logical response that we would, that we would come to if we read the last verse in verse 21. All day long have I stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Paul was acknowledging the fact that God was patient towards a disobedient people for thousands of years, but rather than agreeing with the assumption that God has forgotten about them, he responds back, God forbid. Paul continues to use himself as a personal example to negate the view that God was through with Israel. Paul states, that he was an Israelite, a descendant from Abraham, specifically from the tribe of Benjamin, that God had graciously chosen to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, to spread the gospel throughout the entire world. Paul is living proof that God has not abandoned Israel. Think about it for just a moment. Many of the, beliefs, many of the Jews believed that the Jews would not get saved, that God was completely done with them. That was the thought of many of the Jews. And Paul says it's not the case. I mean, walking testimony, I am living proof that God is not done with his people. We have to be very, very careful drawing conclusions in our own spiritual life based upon an assumption that we have. God is distant. God is silent. God allowed this to come into my life, so therefore God does not care when we cannot see the full big picture. And that's as Jews were doing. They were coming to the conclusion that God was done with them because they were looking at this one specific little group of Jews that were not converted. They were not followers of Christ. And Paul says, no, 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 no. God's still alive. He's still working. Look at me. Look at me. He still has chosen those people. Just because we can't see the evidence of God working right now before our very eyes does not mean that God isn't working. God's overall plan, we talked about this several weeks ago, is far bigger than what we can see within our present circumstances. So many people walk away from the faith because they become so focused on their particular situation they believe that God is not good enough or good, period, for them to be able to place their faith in. God clearly isn't powerful enough because I have this cancer or I have this marriage problem or I have this whatever, fill in the blank. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The faith that is described here involves the most solid possible conviction about God and his future promises. God, it is a God-given assurance of a future reality. When the author says 
that faith is the evidence of things not seen, he is describing that true, genuine faith is not based upon empirical evidence, but a divine assurance. Just because we can't see what God is doing does not mean he's not there. He doesn't exist. So going back to this illustration with the Jews, the Jews failed to believe in God's promises. So therefore they assumed that God was done with the nation of Israel. Paul says, no, he's not done. There's still a remnant. There's still those that God has chosen to be able to be followers of him. Paul says in verse 1, look, I'm living proof that God keeps his promises. I'm a direct descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin that God has graciously chosen to be used for his glory. Has God forgotten about his chosen people? Absolutely not. In order to support his point, Paul uses a personal example to show that. But the second thing we're going to see here is not only that Paul used a personal example, number two, Paul uses a historical example of God's continuous work. All right, so, so sometimes our personal example, our personal story isn't good enough for people. And some of you that said that, they've, that other people have argued with you, you've given evidence of that. So Paul, realizing my personal example is probably not good enough, he then quotes previous prophets, previous examples of the Old Testament in order to support the fact that even when it seems as if God is not working, God is still working behind the scenes. Verse 1 that he shows us here is the story of Elijah, verses 2 through 6. And we see here, letter A, God's dealing with man is based upon his grace. Within verses 2 through 4, what Paul does is he recounts the story of Elijah. Many of you have heard of Elijah before. We've talked about Elijah here in church. Elijah being one of the greatest prophets in all of Scripture was introduced in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. This is what the verse says. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord of God Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain in these years, but according to my word. If you were to really study the ins and outs of this particular verse, you will see just, just a flood of God's grace in Elijah's life in that first verse. So for example, the Bible says that Elijah was a Tishbite. What does that mean? He's from the land of Tishbe. Anybody ever heard of the land of Tishbe? Probably not. Matter of fact, commentators themselves say we hardly know anything about the land of Tishbe. See, the land of Tishbe was, was a completely obscure area within the overall region of Gilead. You know what Gilead was like? It wasn't like Chapel Hill. It didn't have universities. It didn't have opportunities to further your education. It didn't have those things. Gilead was a fishing town. It was a blue-collar town, so to speak. There wasn't a tremendous amount of opportunities for you to advance yourself. So I want you to think about this for a moment. God chose to use a man from a region that did not have a lot of opportunities from in a very obscure part of that region that did not have a lot of opportunities. If you were to line up 10 people, and Elijah being one of them, and give the background in every single person, I guarantee you that not one of you would choose Elijah as being this great leader. There's somebody that's going to be a great person used by God. But God in His sovereign grace, His sovereign election, chose Elijah to be a great prophet. So Elijah goes before Ahab, and he delivers this message. Not until my word will there be rain in this region, this land. We understand that the reason why that was the case was because Ahab and his all-star wife Jezebel were a terrible, terrible, wicked couple. They brought idolatry into the land. They... they, they uh, uh, they really made Baal worship this prominent emphasis within their region, turning the people, the Israelites, completely away from God. And God chose to raise up Elijah. As we see through the story of Elijah and through many uh, experiences of God working in Elijah in a great way, there's this showdown that occurs in 1 Kings chapter 18 between Elijah the true God of, and the true God of Israel and the prophets of Baal. You, you know the story. 
Elijah tells the prophets of Baal that you basically have all of day to prepare this altar. I want you to get the fatted calf. I want you to kill it. I want you to lay it down. And I want you to call upon your God to rain uh, fire down from heaven to consume this altar. If you read the story, it's, it's kind of interesting. Because as they are crying out to their God, and of course nothing's happening because Baal doesn't exist, Elijah begins to poke fun at them. He literally says, is your God in the bathroom? You look at the smack talk that's going on in 1 Kings chapter 18, and it's, it's kind of funny. Elijah's saying, is your, where is he? Is he sleeping? Is he in the bathroom relieving himself? What's going on? And after a full day, it's now Elijah's turn. So Elijah goes and he tells all the people, I want you to make this altar and I want you to take several jars and buckets of water and I want you to pour it upon this altar. And they pour the water upon the altar and it becomes so deep and so saturated that the little uh, uh, um, gully that's around the altar becomes filled up with water. Elijah then calls upon the true God of Israel and just like that, God rained fire down from heaven and not only consumed that altar, the Bible says it consumed the dust, the rocks, and every single bit of that water. And just like that, the Israelites, who apparently had amnesia, realized, oh my goodness, that Baal God is false. The true God is the God of Israel, so therefore their hearts returned. But just like any victory that ever experiences in our life, Elijah became depressed. And he begins to have a conversation with God, and literally he became so depressed that he asked God to take his life. He asked God to basically kill himself, or to kill Elijah. And God responds back in a still small voice and also with some great supernatural events, letting Elijah know that God was still in charge. And then what we see here is a quote that we find here in Romans chapter 11. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18, God says, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all of the knees which have bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which had not kissed him. In other words, Elijah said, I am the only one that is righteous. We call this the Elijah syndrome, and this happens sometimes with those that are in ministry, those that are uh, really, they don't have a lot of spiritual input in their life. They serve and serve and serve, become so worn out and so burned out that they literally think that they are the only spiritual ones in their particular area. We call that the Elijah syndrome. Elijah says, God, nobody loves you. I am the only one. God responds back to Elijah and says, no, no, no. I've set aside 7,000 people that have bowed their knees to me. You're not the only one. Paul then says here in verse, um, in verse 4, But what saith the God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. What Paul is doing is he's reminding the Jews that just because you think that you're the only ones that have been rejected or you the only followers of Christ, God has still chosen a remnant of others to be able to follow him. But he does all of this based upon grace not based upon our good works or merit. Paul says one of the greatest verses about grace in verses 5 and 6, even so of this present time there is a remnant according to the election of grace, and if by grace, then it is no more of works. So salvation is based upon grace. Since it's based upon grace, it can't be based upon works or it would not be grace. What is grace? It is giving us something that we do not deserve. We cannot earn salvation. God says, or Paul says, that God in His grace has chosen a group of people to be part of His remnant. The mere fact that you are a Christian, you are the elect of God, but you did nothing to earn that or achieve that. It was based upon the grace of God. And if anybody else is searching for salvation that's tried to do something in order to receive Christ, it will not happen, it will not work, because that would forfeit grace. 
Our salvation is based upon God's grace, but what does it mean to be saved by God's grace? Paul says in verse 6, It is by grace no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace, but if it be of works, then it is no more grace, otherwise works is no more work. Grace is what makes salvation so beautiful because it is the only way in which sinful man can receive such a beautiful gift. But what about the other Jews? In verses 7 through 10, Paul answers that question which shows us that God's dealing with man is based upon his sovereignty. The Jews are thinking, okay, well, that explains those that have been chosen by God. What about those that have not been chosen by God? And he discusses that in verses 7 through 10. He says in verse 7, What then, Israel, hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded? This is display of God's sovereign election. God ultimately chooses those whom He wills in order to be a part of His sovereign plan, and those that choose to reject God will ultimately fall victim to their own blindness. For example, going back to Romans chapter 9, verse 18, Paul responds to God's sovereign choice by using the example of both Moses and Pharaoh. Moses was chosen by God to lead the nation of Israel out of bondage, and ultimately, Pharaoh was chosen by God to harden his heart. Now, we have to make something very clear. It was Pharaoh that chose to reject God. God hardened Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh chose to reject God. It goes back into that sovereign election. They were both sovereignly chosen by God to fulfill God's overall plan. Romans chapter 9, verse 18 points it out. God has mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will hardeneth. It was not that Pharaoh did not have a choice in the matter. Pharaoh chose to reject God and God hardened Pharaoh's heart as a result of Pharaoh's rejection. So what Paul does is he quotes Isaiah and De Deuteronomy in verse 8. It says, According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not unto this day. And what he does in verses 9 and 10 is he quotes David, which is really a reference to God's judgment upon those that have rejected God. In verses 9 and 10 it says this, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back alway. The word table there, and your versions may say something different, that was a term of security. That was a term of, 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 of goodness for the people. So what, in essence, what he's saying here is let the table of those, in other words, let the very object in which they place their security in actually become a snare and a stumbling block to them. You know people that have rejected God and placed their faith in themselves or placed their faith into something else. In essence, what Paul is saying is let that object, whether it be themselves or something else that they place their faith in, become a stumbling block to them. And they completely, completely turn it away. A person's table was meant to be a place of safety. Paul says let it be a place of damnation in essence. So how can we be encouraged by all of this? God never fails on His promises. Just because we can't see what God is doing in front of us right now does not mean that God is not working. God continued to work in the remnant of Israel just as He promised. God continues to work according to His sovereign election and His plan is far beyond our imagination. We cannot give up when it seems as if God is distant.